Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, in my, well, I've been in a pastor for 53 years, and I know how to tell a healthy church. The front row is filled. That's when, this is the I love Jesus row, you know? Then we go a little further back, we get to the Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists are way back there, you know, uh, but that's okay. Eventually we're going to increase the front row, but it's, it's great to be invited back. You know, I wasn't sure if I was fired or not, but it's good to be, be back. Well, this is the first day of Advent, and a lot of people, I find, don't even know what that means. Kind of like, well, I know it means you light candles and stuff like that. What Advent is, it is the four weeks before the Advent, that is, Christmas morning. And it is during those four weeks that there's an anticipation, there's a preparation for the coming. It's like you keep preparing for the coming of the Lord. And Advent basically is the preparation, the four weeks of preparing, thinking, and that may be getting your home ready to celebrate, reaching out to family, whatever it might be, it's all the next four weeks. It's all about preparing for, for that Advent. And, and, and yet, what I want to talk to you about is what really gives the future of this church. This has been a hard couple years for this church. I mean, think about it. Uh, you got the COVID thing. People begin to realize, you know, I can stay home in my underwear and a cup of coffee and I can, you know, streamline the church. Well, if I'm going to do that, I can listen to MacArthur, you know, or Swindoll or whatever. And, and, and you find all the churches, I'm just, that people aren't coming back. And now you're without a pastor. By the way, I had lunch with him. Jay, what a wonderful man. He's going to be okay. There's a position in San Diego, and he's really thrilled. And, and uh, not so much his kids, but he's really thrilled. Um, so continue to pray. But there's a lot of things that are right. And, and yet, this is a transition time for North Bible. And it's very easy to kind of think, well, you know, I wonder if there's a future for North Bible. Uh, is this a time that maybe we ought to be looking for another church that has a leading senior pastor? No, 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 no. Remember, the front row is full. This, this church, I want to share with you today why Advent, and more than just Advent, the second Advent is the very reason why, indeed, home for the holidays, this is the home, and this is where you come for the holidays. And I want to show you from the scriptures what reason and why North Bible has a future, an important future, that God wants to do things that you only dreamed about that could be done. And so all has to do with the second advent. I, I, I read an article some time ago of, uh, of two ladies, and this was a few days before Christmas, and they were standing outside looking into a department store window at a huge display of the manger scene. And they had the clay um, uh, 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 figures of Jesus and, the, and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the animals. And, and apparently the one lady spouted out, disgusted, said, there it is again, the church trying to horn in on Christmas. You know, we, we got to understand, people have forgotten what this Christmas thing is all about. I want to read you a prophecy that was written 700 years you were talking about in the video that they're sitting there writing, studying. 
This was a prophecy written 700 years before that first Christmas. It's by Micah. And Micah simply writes this in verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago. How long? From the days of eternity. This is a prophecy of not just Christmas, the first advent, but also the second advent, which has everything to do with hope. It's going to be hope that's going to cause this church to continue and to see Jesus continue to grow and deepen this church. People think Christmas is a thing of the past. I mean, something to remember, something to celebrate. We celebrate Christmas. 2,000 years ago, Jesus the baby was born. But, but what if it's really a thing about the future and has everything to do with, with, with hope? Sometimes I feel, especially media people, try to suck all the hope out of us that they can. Matter of fact, news broadcasts, they've actually categorized this concept of hopelessness into nine categories. And this is how many times they prepare their reports. There's alienation, there's forsakenness, there's unspirited, there's powerlessness, oppression, limitlessness, captivity, helplessness, doom. All of those are categories on why you can feel hopeless. Hopelessness is believing that basically things don't get worse than this. And here's the kicker, it's not going to change. That's what despair is. Despair is the opposite of hope, hopelessness. And hopelessness went out with the resurrection. And so when we look at this thing, we, we wonder, well, where do we find hope? I, I, I've always loved Christmas. And the thing I love most about Christmas, believe it or not, even as a kid, was the Christmas tree. For me, it was always a symbol of hope. Things are going to change. Things are going to get better. That was until we had a knock on the door and we had two uh, folks from the local kingdom hall. And when they saw our Christmas tree, they went, oh, no, no, don't you know that the Bible forbids Christmas trees? We're in violation of the scriptures right here because we got Christmas trees. And, and he quoted Jeremiah chapter 10, <coughs> the first five verses, where it says, you are not to go into the forest and cut down trees and decorate them. Well, that's a Christmas tree. And so therefore, it's forbidden in Scripture. And I'm going, oh, great, because I love the Christmas tree. Later, I learned the context of Jeremiah chapter 10. What he's talking about there is idolatry. He's talking about, don't go into the forest, chop down a tree, put silver and gold, and make it an idol and worship it. So unless you're falling on your knees and worshiping your picking Christmas tree, there's no biblical prohibition, no matter what anybody tells you. So enjoy your tree. But why do we even have a, a tree anyway? Well, don't you know it was a pagan thing? They used evergreen trees in ancient pagan festivities. Yeah, and what's your point? All the ancients did. Because in the middle of winter, all the other trees except for evergreen look dead. The leaves are gone. They represent death. So in all, all ancient festivities of life and hope, they always used an evergreen. And so it was therefore picked up as well. Because what would give more sense of hope and enduring life 
And what and who was born in that manger? Hope and life. That's what this whole thing is all about. The tradition of the Christmas tree actually began in, in Germany. Guess who was the first guy to decorate it? And he decorated it with candles. Of course, you know, his insurance guy wasn't too excited, but he put candles on the tree. It was Martin Luther, founder of Lutheranism. And, and the tree always pictured in the Christian tradition is, is, is as high as hope, as wide as love. And if you look carefully at every branch, every bough off the thing, it's a sign of the cross. It's a sign of the cross that gives us the width of love and thus the height of hope. And that's what your tree, if you put up a tree this year, you don't have to. If you love Jesus, you probably will, but <laughs> you don't have to. And even our word hope has suffered its original punch. We get things like, well, I hope. Can I hope, I hope, I hope? It's like a wish. And yet the word elpidos, the biblical term for hope, it never meant a hope, a hope, a hope. It never meant a wish. It meant a solid expectation with anticipation. See, we get so fixated on our now, we tend to forget about the then. Why is hope so important? Paul says, you know, three things you've got to get a handle on at the very end of 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is what we trust. Love is how we express that trust. But hope is what motivates us, what gets you out of bed. I mean, if you had absolutely nothing to look forward to, and you believed nothing is ever going to change, it's always going to be just like today, you're not going to be motivated to do anything. And yet you see, it is hope. Instead of being left like a blob, with a few reflexes to remind ourselves, it is hope that actually motivates us to celebrate and to worship. There was a Greek guy named Theogenes. He was an ancient Greek writer. And he wrote this, quote, I rejoice in the sport of my youth. Long enough beneath the earth shall I lie and so be voiceless as a stone. Leaving the sunlight which I love, good man though I am, then shall see nothing more. Now that's the Christmas spirit. And that's how most people view life. Is you live, you know, you die. And they put you in a hole. And then the flower grows, remember? And the cow eats the flower, we eat the cow. I mean, that's all that people think. And that's a life that is despair. A life without hope, hopelessness. And so you begin to see, where does hope fit into the second advent? And second advent is the hope that makes Christmas Christmas. Christmas is not just about a then, 2,000 years ago. Christmas is about a now that's totally changed because of an upcoming then. You look weird. I'll show you what I mean. Open your Bibles, if you love Jesus, to Micah chapter 5. I want to walk you through this. Here's the context of Micah chapter 5. Israel, remember, they went through a civil war after Solomon. He had a north kingdom and then a southern kingdom. All the kings of the northern kingdom were real jerks. They all rebelled against God. So finally God uses another country, Assyria, to basically have them for lunch. And they're exiled. Well, about another 130 years later, uh, the southern kingdom, known as Judah, well, they do okay because they've got a splattering of a good couple of good kings. But now they continue to mess up as well. And so what is happening here is there's another foreign country, Babylon, 
that is about to eat them for lunch. And it's not good news. Talk about transition. These people are wondering, where is God in this whole thing? This is going to get bad. Look at verse 1, Micah chapter 5. Micah writes, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, now, this has been translated by Hebrew scholars as simply this. You better gather up your troops and get ready to give your best shot because you're going down on this one. Not real encouraging. And he talks about with a rod they shall strike the judge of Israel. This is the king of Israel. The last of the kings of the Judah of the southern kingdom was basically Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, he's going to not only be killed, but he gets his watch his eyes, how do you watch your eyes be plumped out? Anyhow, after he sees his two sons assassinated by Nebuchadnezzar. So this is really, he's in deep mud. This doesn't look like the future is going to get better. It looks pretty bad. So here's Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. They're ready to come and do the same thing that Syria did to the northern kingdom. Because the southern kingdom never learned one thing about honoring God. Honor God and God will protect and bless you rebel against God, all bets are off. So then you see the expectant, hopeless, hopefulness. Look at verse 2. In this horrible context of despair, he says, But, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. What is that? Well, you know, you, you, the, the Bethlehem, that rings a bell. Remember the Christmas song? Oh, little town, don't worry, I'm not going to sing. Uh, Bethlehem, you ever wonder what does Bethlehem, why? What's the significance of Bethlehem? It has everything to do with the second advent, which has everything to do with hope, which has everything to do with the future of this church. Because basically Bethlehem was the smallest. A clan in this time usually had about a thousand people. So in your community you had a thousand people, you were a clan. But there are less than a thousand people. So nobody really knows much about Bethlehem. It's just a little village. So it has to be identified by its ancient district name, Ephrathah. And so it's like Bethlehem, which you probably never heard of. The, the, the little village in Ephrathah, that district. And people go, oi, oi, vey, I got it, I understand. Now, what's the deal here? Why is the point of Bethlehem? What's so special about Bethlehem? David was born there 300 years before Micah. David was born in Bethlehem. And David became, of course, Israel's greatest king. But there was one other thing that happened to David. As a matter of fact, in 2 Samuel, you, you've got a promise that is made. David, David basically uh, wants, there we are, he, he wants to build uh, a temple for God. Because things are going great. David's being triumphant. He's there in Jerusalem. And he's got a big, beautiful mansion. And then he got still a little tabernacle, a little tent. You know, it came from Costco. Well, no, but there's a little tent, you know, for God. And so David wants to build a temple, a house for God. And, and, and Nathan, the prophet, says, sounds like a good idea. Well, God shows up to Nathan that night and says, I'm going to kill you. Well, in so many words, wrong, wrong advice. 
You get back to David and say, no way is he going to build the temple. He's a man of blood. So Nathan has to go the next morning back to David and say, David, remember that dream you have of building a temple, a house for God? Not going to happen. Well, David's kind of bummed out, but he says, Nathan says, but there is some good news. And a promise is made. It's actually called the Davidic Covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says in verse 12, when your days, here's God speaking to the prophet Nathan to David, who's kind of disappointed because he doesn't get to build the temple. Who's going to build the temple, by the way? Solomon. Who's Solomon? His, his son. It's one of those situations where the son gets to build a temple. But what about old dad? He did all the hard work. Talk about a trust fund, baby. But we're not going to go there. <laughs> Verse 12. When your days are complete, David, and you lie down in your fathers, with your fathers, God says, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. So is he talking about Solomon there? Keep reading. He shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Solomon, your son's going to build the, the temple, but I'm going to do something more than that. It's not going to be a temple. I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. And with the rod of men and strokes of the sons of men. So he's going to deal with Solomon, but then he goes and he just flies into the future. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom, David, your house, David, your kingdom, shall endure before me forever. What do you think forever means? Forever. Your throne will be established forever. He says it twice. And so it's always been understood that, that the throne of David is going to be forever. The only problem is, um, where is it? Where is it in the days of Jesus? The throne of David is going to be established forever. But when Jesus is born... Who's the king of Israel at that time? Say Herod. Yeah, right. See, front row knew that. Herod. Herod was. Wait a minute. Herod's not even Jewish. He's an Edomite. How can he be sitting on the throne of David, which would be forever? The problem is, how, how did Herod become, if he wasn't even Jewish, how did he become the king of the Jews? Gentlemen, take note. Young gentlemen aren't married. He married well. <laughs> Basically, he married an heir to the throne. But this guy, after a few years, he murders her. And he's so vicious as a person, he gets so threatened because he wants to hold on to being a king so that he kills two of his sons. As a matter of fact, the Roman, a Roman emperor Augustus said, quote, it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. So it's really well known. And by the way, later on, the slaughtering of the children, what we know in history about this man makes it absolutely believable. Why would he do that? Now picture what's going on here. When the priests and the scribes, living at the time of Herod, who is not a Jew, but an Edomite, sitting and ruling as king over the Jews, they show him this promise. That's going to be the throne of David. That's going to be forever. And then they showed him this promise here in Micah 5. 
that in Bethlehem there's going to be one who will be born like David was born. This one, 700 years later, is going to be born just like David was in Bethlehem. And his days from the days of eternity. And he's going to come and rule and reign. Well, guess what? Is, do you think Herod's really thrilled with this information? Come on, anybody home? No. no he's not happy at all. Then, then we have the Magi connection. Now remember, these are the guys with the real cool hats. But remember something here. There's probably 12 of them. Uh, tradition tells us three. There's probably 12. I received a letter from a woman after a, uh, preaching on the Magi some years ago. And, and she was just saying that if there had been three wise women who showed up instead of wise men, and then she wrote this. One, they would have asked questions and got there on time. They would have arrived on time. They would have delivered the baby, cleaned the stable, make a casserole for the shepherds, and would have brought practical gifts. <laughs> she and I talked. I don't know what church, but I promise you she does not sit in the front row. <laughs> My question is this. How did the Magi, who lived way out to the east, Persia, how did they even know that in Bethlehem, there's going to be the birth of a king that will have an eternal kingdom. How did they even know about that stuff? The Magi basically were magicians, conjurers for the Persian kings skilled in philosophy, science, and astronomy. Now, remember who saved 600 years before this happened, the birth of Jesus? Who saved the lives of these Magi who showed up of their great, 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 great grandfathers. Remember, they were really in a serious situation because their boss was Nebuchadnezzar. And he calls all his magicians and all his conjurers together. And he says, I had a dream, but I don't remember what the dream was. But I want you to tell me what the dream was and then interpret it for me. Well, they wet their tunics. I mean, they're just kind of going, how can you do that? And so he's going to kill them, all of them. But guess who steps up? Daniel. And Daniel, basically, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, he goes, tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream, gives the interpretation of the dream, and he saves the lives of these magi. Don't you think for a moment that he became famous and his name and his writings were passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down and studied? That's why, that's how the Magi learned about it, because they knew of the writing of Daniel. And because of the writing of Daniel, then they would have realized about what Micah said. And they would have realized what the scripture said about this one, but especially born in Bethlehem. But here's what really motivated them, because Daniel wrote something really interesting that they would have studied and that would have been passed down. Because after Daniel basically saves the lives of these original magi, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision, a dream. And Daniel says in Daniel 7 verse 9, I kept looking until the thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and wheels were a burning fire. It's like a courtroom situation and judgment's about to take place. The river fire is flowing. And he says this in verse 11. Then I kept looking. 
because of the sound of the boastful words. And then he's talking about Antichrist. Then he says this in verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night. Now these are the words in basically uh, either in Arabic, uh, I mean Aramaic or in Hebrew, that these priests and scribes in the days of Herod, this is what they're reading. And what they read is, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, which that was a gutsy thing. Ancient of Days, God's about to bring judgment, and he presents himself. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Now why would the Magi be interested in this? Next verse. That all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve him. Do you think they're a little curious about this king who's going to be born in Bethlehem that's going to have an eternal dominion kingdom given by God the Father to this one like the Son of Man? His dominion is everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Boy, what does this sound like? Remember we call it the Davidic covenant? Sounds like the same thing God promised about the throne of David. His kingdom would be forever and ever. Here it talks about one like the Son of Man shows up and the Ancient of Days makes a promise that he's going to have a kingdom and Micah makes it clear that Bethlehem has something to do with this. So Herod's not real happy about this. So when the three magi, our 12 magi, showed up, he, he basically said, when you find the kid in Bethlehem, uh, let me know, because I want to go and worship him as well. I don't mind losing my kingdom, even though I murdered my wife and both of my sons to keep my kingdom, but I want to worship him. Well, they find the birthplace there in Bethlehem, and then the angel tells basically the magi who tricked them, Get out of there. Don't go back to Herod. And when Herod hears that he was tricked, he explodes. And how do we know he explodes? In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, what does he do? He sends his troops into Bethlehem and slaughters every male child, every male infant. And he wanted to make sure that if this one, ancient of days, is going to give a kingdom, this son of man, this one who's going to reign his kingdom forever and ever, he needs to be dead on arrival. And Herod's going to make sure he's dead on arrival. Now here's what's interesting. This whole thing is about a promise. Herod wants a child dead. But here's what Micah said back. Back in Micah chapter 5. Now listen to verses 4 and 5. So he says, And he will... Arise, the shepherd of his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. How far do you think we are from where this was written? Israel? You do understand we're a long ways away. You might even say we're close to the ends of the what? Of the world. Just like he promises right there. This is that son of man who would rise to the throne of David and shepherd his people. Interesting picture. Instead of fleecing like kings would use people to, for their own power, this one would be a, consider himself a shepherding king. 
How does Jesus identify himself in John chapter 10? You are my sheep, and I'm the good shepherd. And I'm willing to lay my life down as a shepherd for the sheep. This is the one. And the promise is that this one, this one, the Father is going to give a kingdom that will be forever, including representatives from every tongue, every nation, around the creation itself. Have you ever wondered why is it taking so long? I, 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 I get a little snarky at times. And, and I remember laying on the couch thinking, Jesus, what's the problem? I mean, what, then you're getting so bad. When are you going to come? Well, I'm going to come quickly. It's been 2,000 years. That's a long, quickly. Of course, taxes means when I come, it will be quick. But here's the thing that's interesting. What has God been doing? You know why it's been taking 2,000 years before Jesus has returned to Jerusalem to be that king on David's throne? Because the Father is still populating the gift. If the Father had given the gift to Jesus in the first century, it'd be a little gift, a little kingdom, and primarily Jewish. But the promise is that this kingdom would have all tongues, representatives of all nations, all languages, and guess what the Father's doing? He's populating the gift with people who will adore His Son, and once that thing is filled and populated, determined by the Father, that's when the Father gives the kingdom to Jesus, and He returns to Jerusalem. Now, it's very interesting to me, is David is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is called the city of David, until David then returns and returns as king into Judah. And when he returns of king in Jerusalem, then Jerusalem is known as the city of David. Born in Bethlehem, returned to Jerusalem to rule. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, will return to Jerusalem. What does Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14 say? When he lands, his feet will land on the Mount of what? Say olives. Very good. Olives. In other words, he, just like David, born in Bethlehem, returned to rule in Jerusalem. Jesus, born in Bethlehem. And when the Father has populated the gift and gives the gift of this eternal kingdom dominion to the Son, then the Son returns to rule. And he doesn't return to Bethlehem. Just like David, he returns to Jerusalem. That's why in John chapter 6, when Jesus said in verse 44 and 45, no one comes unto me. No one's going to believe that Jesus is God's son, this future king who will sit on the throne of David. That's a wacko story. Who's going to believe that? And Jesus admitted it. He said, no one comes unto me unless what? Who? The father draws him. And in verse 45, for the prophets say, the father in heaven will cause them to recognize, to learn of who I am. Now, why is the father personally involved? and causing people to recognize who his son is. Think with me, who's populating the gift? The father is. There's a verse that sends theologians just into crazy land. It's when Jesus is asked, well, when, when, is, when is the son of man coming, and when is the kingdom going to come? And Jesus says, no man knows the time or the epics, uh, nor angels, nor the son of man. And right there you go, whoa, 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 Jesus is God. He knows everything. 
How could Jesus say he doesn't know when he's going to return with the kingdom from the Father? Because it's a gift from the Father. And the Father holds that to himself apparently until he reveals the gift when it's fully populated and he comes. Now you know what's interesting about this? When we talk, we talk a lot about Advent, first Christmas. But do you understand the second Advent, the return of Jesus to Jerusalem? Just like David, born in Bethlehem, return to Jerusalem to rule. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, will return to Jerusalem to rule for eternity. Do you know that this second Advent is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament alone? One out of every 25 verses makes reference to it. Every New Testament writer makes reference to it. Matter of fact, in Matthew 24, when they asked Jesus, what's going to be the sign of your coming and your future coming? And Jesus basically in Matthew 24 summarizes the first couple chapters of Revelation. And then he says this, and then you shall see the Son of Man coming in glory. And he shall sit on the throne, and the Son of Man will come in the clouds. What does it mean he comes in the clouds? Do you remember when Jesus, at his first ascension, in Acts chapter 1, he talks to the boys, and then all of a sudden, and they're looking at him going, Matthew, what just happened? Get an algorithm and figure that out, Matthew. And, and they're looking up, and all of a sudden it says, two angels, Two men, clothed in white, show up and say, Men of Galilee, why are you looking to the skies? Don't you know this same, same, same Jesus will, re will return just as he left? I told you this, I think, last time. Critics will say, well, Jesus traveled at, a, at, at the speed of light, 185,000 miles per second. He wouldn't be out of our solar system yet. It doesn't say Jesus did a tour past Pluto. Oh, I guess Pluto doesn't count anymore, does it? Anyway, but basically simply says he was caught up in a cloud like he just stepped into another dimension. He's going to step out of that dimension. He's going to come right out of the clouds. That's why I always look at clouds. And I'm always figuring a good time for Jesus to come. Jesus, that's great. Now's a good time. But he never listens to me. Later on, Matthew 26, catch this, Jesus is arrested. Jesus is now before the high priest, Caiaphas. And, and, and they're charging him with all this stuff. He's going to blow up the temple. He's a terrorist and da-da-da. And Jesus won't say a thing. Well, the high priest, he just goes crazy. And he makes, he puts Jesus under oath. Swear by God himself, are you the Christ? So here's Jesus under oath. Now, if he wants to save his Naugahyde, this is a good time to do it. And what does he say? You have said it yourself. You shall see the Son of Man. Wait, 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 wait. Why every time he refers to his coming to rule and to bring the kingdom, he refers to himself by his favorite self-designation in the Gospels, Son of Man. Why does he keep saying the Son of Man? Why does he say, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be angry? No, he will always say the Son of Man. When you see the Son of Man at the right hand of power, come, he shall come and bring the kingdom. Why do you think he keeps referring to himself as the Son of Man? Remember what the Magi read? 
We read about Daniel, who saved the lives of their ancients. And that's why he was so popular among the Magi at the time of Jesus, so much they would travel hundreds of miles because they wanted to be locate, because Micah told them to be in Bethlehem. This king would be come forth. So what did Daniel say in Daniel 7? Who's going to come and receive from the ancient of days this eternal dominion? One like the, come on, you can say it. One like the son of man. Jesus, is, and when he says he's the son of man comes, he's not saying I'm less than God. He's simply saying I'm the one. I'm the guy. I'm the guy Daniel's talking about that's going to receive from the Father this eternal kingdom. And when he lands, as David born in Jerusalem, I mean born in Bethlehem, returns to Jerusalem to rule, Jesus born in Bethlehem, returns to Jerusalem to rule, and again, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14 talks about when Jesus, when one like the Son of Man returns, he's received the gift from the Father's kingdom. Now, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is already in, in heaven. See, Christmas is not merely a thing of the past to celebrate. It really is a thing of the future to anticipate. It reminds us, the first advent reminds us of the Second advent. That first advent, that's the new Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. That causes us to see how it all fits together with the second advent. And so what do we do knowing there is going to be a second advent? And this first advent, Christmas, just reminds us the fact that Jesus is going to return. But this time, not as a baby, making my little child. He, he returns as the King of kings, Lord of lords, and returns because he's received a kingdom from the ancient of days, a dominion that would be forever. Well, John, in his letter, this is after he wrote the book of Revelation, gets off the island of Patmos. John says, let me explain something. How do you respond to the fact Jesus is going to return? It says in chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. You want to know how you can know that verse is so true? Tomorrow, go to some stranger and say, by the way, I'm a child of God. Watch their response. They're not going to know that. They're going to think you're crazy because they thought he's crazy. Verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears... We shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. So when we see him return, either at the rapture, or if we're still here and he comes, he says this, and everyone who has this hope, there's our word, this hope, fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So here's my question for North Bible. How does that happen? If we really know that this Christmas first advent is to remind us that the second advent is coming. Jesus is going to return and it is a big deal. And when he appears, it's going to confirm who we really are, children of God. As children of God, we want to honor our Heavenly Father. It's all going to be proven true when Jesus Christ returns. 
And either it's going to be when it's proven true when Jesus Christ returns, he comes here, or I die and get out of this place, and I see him face to face. Either way, it's a win-win. But here's what happens. I want to know, how do we respond? Well, for this hope, we purify ourselves. Okay, how do we do that? Here's the reason when people ask me, why should the church gather together? Why should you be home for the holidays? Why should you, if there's ever a time for you to be committed to be part of this fellowship, this church, and invite your friends to see the front row filled, but to see what God is doing here, here's the reason I give. Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read three verses to you as we close. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. How do you do that? Without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Promised what? The second advent. of The coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. To establish us as his children. He says then, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That word stimulate speaks of a long pole with a real sharp end. They used to stimulate cattle. Mm. It can be translated to irritate, which is a gift, Holly says, that I have. <laughs> but somehow, we are to encourage, stimulate one another to what? Love and good deeds. How do we do that? Well, by turning the TV on and streaming the church. No, next verse. Not forsaking our own assembling together. This is the habit of, this is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more, here it is, as you see the day drawing near. Why is this so important? Can I encourage you, if there's a TV camera here, and just watch me on TV? Well, what about the rest of you? How do we encourage each other? Interesting, just finished the study in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And 2nd John, it's a little tiny, it's only 13 verses. 3rd John, bigger book, 14 verses. And he deals with this lady in over-hospitality and messing up there. But then he wants to talk more about more things with her and he says but and he gives the reason for the brevity of the letters he says in second john the very end he says i'm going to keep this short because i want to come and talk to you face to face he does the same thing in third john he, he writes to gaius and he says, Gaius, you got to deal with this tubhead who is Theophilus, who's basically trying to run the church and aren't helping missionaries. But Gaius, there's more things I need to talk to you. And I need to talk to you, guess what? Face to face. See, that's why we gather as a church. That's why it's not, the, I'm not that impressed you sitting home and streaming. No, the word of God says we gather together to face-to-face, to stimulate and encourage one another to do love and good works. Because of our hope, the day is drawing near. And therefore, as others are involved in my life face-to-face, I am being changed by the Spirit of God through you, and therefore I'm being purified. And that's exactly what John says. 
should be our response to the second advent. The fact he's going to appear again. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Home for the holidays. What a great theme for this church. Because some people are wondering, well, should I find a new home? Just look around. You want to be a part of church of 3,000? 5,000? Thousands of people. Oh, this is a great church. We are so big. We're the biggest church in Arizona. And you just see facelessness if you're not careful. But you know, I know something you don't know. See, for years, you thought I could not see you. I can see every one of you. You're a little fuzzy because you're not in the front row. But I can see these people clearly. Because face to face, you can see my face, I can see your face. And I have only one thing. I want to encourage you in any way I can through the word of God, through hope. I want to encourage you to be able to love, recognize that people need people who recognize that they bear the image of God and that God loves them and good works, that you care about their well-being. But you do that face to face. And that's what encourages us. I'll tell you, if God grows this church and you're at five services and it's packed, people are going to go, wow, look at that. I am so sorry that happened. Because these are the good days. Now's the time. This is when the church is doing church. And that's why Christmas, first advent, next four weeks, get ready to celebrate and remember the first advent, the coming of Christ. But let the coming of Christ, the first advent, remind you that there's going to be a second advent. It's talked more in the Bible than the first advent. And when Christ returns, he's going to receive us to himself. Meanwhile, what do I do with this hope? I'm now motivated. Motivated to do what? Come to church. Motivate. Encourage. And then get ready for it throughout the week, which is the real mission field. That's why I beg you. This is no time to be leaving north. It's no time for church shopping. I'm not even part of this church. But there's a side of me that wants to be. So I'll tell you, this is home for holidays. This is your home. This is your home, and these are your people. And these are all vessels God's going to use to purify you so you can anticipate the coming of Christ. Does this make sense? Because I could do it all again. <laughs> then you'd miss lunch, and then you'd be really ticked, I could tell on your face, because I could see you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these folks. Thank you for this church, North Bible Church. What a great name, Bible Church. People aren't going to be confused what this church is all about. We believe in you. We believe in your word. And Father, you are Heavenly Father. We are your children, and you're engaged in every detail of our life. And you want us to deepen. God, we know that if we concern ourselves with the depth of our ministry, you'll take care of the breadth of it. Lord, we don't need to worry about that. But right now, we can see each other. We can know each other's name. This is a season that's a blessing. May we celebrate it with this Christmas. May we prepare the next four weeks for the great celebration that's going to remind us of the greater celebration when Jesus Christ comes 
the Son of Man, sits on the throne of his father, which is the throne of David, promised to be forever and to include all of us. Lord, may your will be done, we ask in the name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.